So I think it's important for people to know that these mamas and papas and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas are coming because it's their last resort. They are doing everything possible. They're fulfilling their responsibility as caregivers of children and families to do whatever is necessary to to make their children's lives better and safer. Immigration continues to be at the forefront of political debate, fraught with rhetoric and scare tactics around the world and in the U.S. And the media we consume, the language we use, it all matters. What if showing up starts with listening? Today, we'll hear from Jose, a friend who came to the U.S. with his family as an undocumented child. We'll hear what he wishes others knew about his life through the eyes of a young boy caught between two worlds, and how his experiences as an immigrant motivate him now as a college student. We'll also hear from Laura Pontius, an immigration attorney and educator, who knows how much language matters. But first, we want to update you on the work Preemptive Love is doing on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border and the emergency assistance you've made possible. Now, the knee has shifted to Juarez, Mexico, where we're focusing on efforts to support local, long-term shelters implementing sustainable solutions that will help minimize running costs, create a more dignified space, and serve asylum seekers. Because of your contributions, we'll also be providing legal assistance to asylum seekers to help them understand their current situation, their rights as asylum seekers, and then support them during their court case. My colleague Billy Price recently spent time at the U.S.-Mexico border, visiting shelters in Juarez and connecting with Preemptive Love's partners on the ground to provide much-needed aid. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 11,800 minors, including both children separated from their parents and those who arrived alone, are currently in their care, in their network of more than 100 shelters, in 17 states. This doesn't include the number of children staying in shelters in Mexico. Billy told me about a woman he met in Mexico whose family is now bisected by the U.S. southern border. Yeah, so for her safety and privacy, we're going to call her Luisa. She's a short, tender woman from Honduras, about 60 years old. And when we met her, she had been doing laundry by hand at a long-term shelter. At this time of year, it was hot inside and out, and there was nothing really to do for many of the refugees other than the laundry, helping with meals. So there's not much choice just to be sitting around the heat. Louisa came to apply for asylum with her three grandchildren. Her daughter, the mother of the children, came to the U.S. about six years ago. But for Louisa, life in Honduras was increasingly unsafe. Louisa's husband, the girl's grandfather, was abusive. The father of the grandchildren was long gone, and a gang member had been harassing the oldest of the three girls. So, Luisa came here to legally seek asylum. I love my girls so much. I have been there by their side. I taught them how to walk, how to eat. I taught them how to value things in life. They are growing, they are studying, and learning how to value life. Since my daughter came here, I was in charge of them. 
I have been their support. She was the sole caretaker for her granddaughters, but when she filed her paperwork, she didn't have evidence of any of it, nor of the gang threats to her family. So she didn't have tangible proof of anything. The judge told us we needed to present evidence, but I don't have evidence. I just said what happened to me. The girls were in danger. This is so common. There's no evidence or paperwork because Honduras is such a mess. The government services there are often inaccessible or non-existent. Police aren't available or are often untrustworthy. People are robbed of their evidence or paperwork while migrating. Our system expects people to arrive with, quote, first world documentation. But that's exactly what they have not had and why they're in need. So instead, they charged her with a crime. And her granddaughters, one is 15 years old, one is 12, and the youngest is seven. They were separated from her by the officials. She told us that when they crossed the border in El Paso, they were told to put everything they had in a large container, and they were left with nothing. And then they were separated. They took the girls from me. The little one said, no, mama, I don't want to go. I raised those girls. When we talked with her, it had been over 250 days since she had seen her children. She's been waiting since October 2018. I kept asking them about the girls. Where were they? They said they couldn't tell me anything because I'd committed a crime bringing them here, that I wasn't a relative to them. We spoke with Lisa for nearly an hour that day, and we learned so many of her personal stories, like her time making tortillas and selling paletas to provide for the kids. And she told us about a time when she was estranged from her daughter. She talked about her daughter returning home with these three grandchildren, and she spoke of their reunion with so much warmth and hospitality and mercy and love. And years later, after that reunion, she had to make an incredibly difficult choice. And all she wanted was to do what's right for her grandchildren and for her daughter. And she traveled from Honduras through Guatemala and through Mexico, just the four of them. She made it all the way to our border. And now she's alone. One of the things that Preemptive Love is doing is partnering with local legal nonprofits to give advice and education to people like Louisa and to potentially represent them in court. But for now... She'll continue to wait. A year after a federal judge ordered the current administration to stop separating parents and children at the U.S.-Mexico border, families are still being separated. In January, the American Academy of Pediatrics renewed its call for an end to family separation at the U.S. southern border, following a report showing thousands more children were separated than previously reported due to the number of other relatives, siblings, aunts and uncles, grandparents, cousins, who, just like Louisa, bring a child to the U.S. without their birth parents and then are separated by immigration agents. How do we approach these families seeking asylum with care and compassion? It's a question we've been asking ourselves. Even within preemptive love, our team is scattered on the political spectrum. But what can we all agree on? 
Every single human deserves dignity and respect. We have to model what it looks like to listen. Because love crosses borders. And as the crisis evolves, this is what it boils down to. Families are risking danger, desperately trying to find refuge. And we can be the people who choose to love anyway on the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kayla. I'm a producer of the Love Anyway podcast. And as I've been working on this episode, as I've been hearing Luisa's story, I have personally felt moved, not only as a member of the Preemptive Love team, but as a mom, as somebody who is raising kids and cares about them. I can't imagine what it's like to be separated from children that I have raised, that I have loved so dearly. It's easy to feel hopeless. It's easy to listen to these stories and feel disconnected, feel like we could never do something that matters. But I want to challenge you to go to preemptivelove.shop, just like I did, and look at our new line, Love Beyond Borders. They're three different t-shirt styles, and all of the money from these shirts goes right back to the work that Preemptive Love and our partners are doing at the U.S.-Mexico border. So go to preemptivelove.shop. If you find something you like, we want to give you the code PODCAST for 20% off one item. Grab one for yourself, grab one for someone you love, and get the conversation going knowing that your purchase has tangibly helped people at the U.S.-Mexico border. In 2001, my entire family migrated here we crossed the desert like many migrants did. Seeing the news even today about families crossing and families being separated and being held in cages is painfully sad to me. It really does cause physical pain to see photos and read about these things that are happening in the South. People calling them concentration camps, and I think they are that. To think that that could have been myself being separated from my parents. It could have been any one of my family members. That's Jose Chiquito. My colleague Kim Moreau sat down with Jose in Indiana, where Jose is a college student. You want to start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing here okay. in Goshen? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, my name is Jose Chiquito. I'm in- Jose's parents are from a small state in central Mexico. His mom was a city girl, his father a village boy the son of a cheese-making family. They met when he was selling cheese in the city. They married, had Jose and his sister, and realized that raising children in the crashing local economy was hard. Impossible, even. The agricultural sector was getting hit, and the effects reverberated everywhere. His parents couldn't afford diapers, medicine, and sometimes even formula. His father, in his mid-twenties, migrated north for work, and soon Jose and his mother and sister followed suit, crossing the desert into the U.S. Yeah, I grew up in in Goshen since I was three. I always knew I was undocumented, and, and that was somehow normal. We asked him what it was like to bear the invisible, undocumented status label. It wasn't a label he chose for himself, but it was always there. My dad, for three or four years after we arrived to the U.S., he began selling cars. He started with one car and 
saved up money, still worked at a factory. Eventually had a good enough business to fully do a car business. It, it was especially hard for us in the recession because nobody wants to buy a car. It didn't really matter much. I mean, other than like we're driving and there's a cop behind us or there's, you know, police around. Like, don't look, you know, just act normally. Don't look suspicious. There's this constant fear of being pulled over while driving. And it happened to my dad several times because he drove basically for a living. He would go to car auctions, sometimes as far as Milwaukee or Pennsylvania and driving without a license because Indiana does not give licenses to undocumented people. So there were definitely a few scares and instances where my dad did get tickets, but he was fine, miraculously. So there's this fear of authority. Like the first time it mattered to me was in middle school. As a young student, Jose learned about a statewide scholarship program. His teachers explained that if he maintained high grades all the way through high school, he could be eligible for a full-ride scholarship to college. In fourth grade, he started making goals. His parents were proud of him, but they didn't speak English, let alone understand the inner workings of the education system. It only propelled Jose to work harder. When we go to this meeting in middle school where, oh, fill out an application for the 21st Century Scholarship. I had heard about this. I'm like, oh, hey, I tell my parents and I'm excited. We go there. We get to a part in the application where we're asked for a social security number. And my mom's like, you can't apply for this. You don't have one. I'm like, oh. And we go back home. And it's, it was a quiet devastation for me because I knew but somehow I didn't realize it would matter so much. The first version of the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, also known as the DREAM Act, was introduced in 2001. As a result, young, undocumented immigrants like Jose have since been called DREAMers. Over the last 18 years, at least 10 versions of the DREAM Act have been introduced in Congress. They all would have provided a pathway to legal status for undocumented youth who came to this country as children. But despite bipartisan support for each bill, none has become law. That's when I realized that it's so not fair. That stayed with me through high school and, and sort of immigration became more present in my mind. I became aware of politics and immigration because it's necessary and because everyone in the immigrant community needs to know about it. And we care because it affects us immediately. You know, there's more talk about Dream Act and everybody's informed of what it is more or less. I am able to be more informed because I can read, I can watch, you know, English. And we're, we learn about how U.S. politics work in school. And so I'm a little more literate in that. And my family comes to me and asks what is happening. And I feel a responsibility to learn and help my family be informed. At the time, I'm not of age yet to qualify for DACA, for Deferred Action for Childhood, for childhood Arrivals. But within a year, I, I qualify and I get the status. And I remember the day that I was like in the car and that we heard it on the radio and my dad was so happy. We were driving back from a car auction, of all things, and he was driving and he's like, you'll be able to drive legally and that's important and go to college. And that was the thing that I was thinking about the most, go to college. 
having it be easier to get an education and a career, perhaps. Then I felt that I could have a normal existence and not hide the fact that I was undocumented. With, with friends in school, you know, they talked about college and about these different things that I couldn't be part of because of my status. I would hide and kind of pretend that I, it didn't matter, but it always does. Middle school and high school students don't understand that if they are not undocumented. They don't understand what that is and why people can't easily be U.S. citizens. So it's easier just not to talk about it and pretend that you are a U.S. citizen. And your peers wouldn't understand otherwise. As a kid and later as a teen, Jose was like many of us at that age, hoping to fit in. In his Latinx circles... Talking about being undocumented wasn't taboo, it was just part of life. But at school, it was a different story. It becomes difficult and awkward to talk about it with people who don't understand and who, who could just have very insulting responses to what you have to say and to your own story. So you avoid that. In high school, it did feel like I fit in. I was well-liked, I had a lot of acquaintances and but yeah, that was just not something that I shared. And people wouldn't typically ask. Immigration is a complicated topic, even for adults. Some of us are afraid to say the wrong thing. Others of us are afraid of those who are different. But listening to people like Luisa and Jose is a good start because stories connect us, erasing the lines between us versus them. But then what? Where do we go from here? How do we broach a topic so often filled with political vitriol with our family members, with our kids? When we talk with our kids, we, we make sure to emphasize that a lot of the people that are coming are mamas and papas and nanas and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. And um, we try to put it in terms of relationship because our kids have relationships with, uh, you know, their parents and their grandparents and aunts and uncles. So that's something they can understand. They want to make it safe for you. They love you and they care for you. And so they would do anything for you. Um, so we try to put it in relational terms for our kids. That's Laura Pontius. Laura is an immigration attorney and educator who lives and works in Northern Indiana. Laura is also a mom whose work with clients around the world informs the kind of conversations she has with her children. I have two daughters, and they are seven and four. Seven and four. So are they too young to be hearing about what's happening in your country with immigration, or are they picking up on that? My kids aren't really exposed to nightly news. But to answer your question, no, I don't think they're too young. Um, we do talk with them about immigration, mostly because it's what I do <laughs> for my work. And so a lot of times when we talk to them, we talk about um, what I do. And we have been talking with our seven-year-old a little more about some of the recent issues um, that have happened at the border and kind of talked with her about um, some of the changes that have happened that affect you know, the work that I'm doing and the people that I'm working with. So we're able to have more in-depth conversations with her just because she's older. But um, with the four-year-old, we, we kind of try to balance what we share with her 
and then also every child is different. So, um, you know, my seven-year-old is, is very empathetic and cares very deeply about other people. And so when we share with her, we try to um, kind of give her the tools to navigate what we know she might be feeling uh, with the realities of the situation. What kind of questions does she ask you in these conversations? <laughs> I represented a family earlier this year that was claiming asylum from a country in Africa. And we had a time where she actually was with me when I was meeting with them. Um, we were just doing a brief meeting. And so I had her in tow with me. And so I just shared with her, you know, this is why this family came to the United States. And this is what I'm doing to help them. You know, the paperwork and the process to go through to be able to stay in the United States is very complicated. It takes a lot of papers. And I show her my files and I say, you know, you see how much paper this is? Like not everybody can navigate this process on their own. And so she asked questions, you know, in the, in the midst of that case, you know, like where did they come from? You know, we told her it wasn't safe for them to live where they were living. And so they chose to come to the United States because it was safer here for them, for their particular situation. Um, and so she would ask, why wasn't it safe? And their particular asylum claim was based on religious persecution. And so we, we explained to her, you know, in the United States, we're really lucky because we can believe what we want to believe. We can say whatever we want to say. Um, we can have an opinion about anything. So, you know, I tell her, your favorite color is pink, but my favorite color is red. And we can have those choices and we can say them as loud as we want wherever, but not everybody can have the same freedom in other countries. And so, you know, just kind of explain to her that we are really lucky to have those things here in the United States and that people want to be able to um, live in a place where they can believe what they want to believe. Laura and her family live in a rural area near farmers. This has given her the chance to talk about one of the causes of migration that isn't talked about as much as it should be. My husband is a professor of sustainability. So a lot of times we talk about um, some of the reasons why people come and how recently some of those reasons are changing because the climate is changing. So a lot of people that are in Central America or kind of around the equator area, they're finding that they can't live in the areas that they have always been able to live. And so we talk about, you know, we, we live out in the country and we live by farmers. So we talk about how, you know, these farmers, um, it's been raining and it's been sunny and you see how their crops are growing. And so they are able to have money to feed their family because the weather is good here for them and how it's not that way in other parts of the world. So other farmers who depend on the rain and the sun and the weather to be a certain way, um, they haven't been able to provide money for their family to, to eat and to live because the weather is changing. So, you know, we, we do also try to not make it all doom and gloom for them, but just kind of give them tips about how, um, you know, all of these things are connected um, globally. In fact, it's very connected to our actions and our choices that we make day to day um, in our lives. I asked Laura to tell me about the language around the immigration issue. In the immigrant advocacy community, we always use the term um, undocumented versus illegal. Um, 
a, you know, from our perspective, illegal describes um, not a human, <laughs> but an action. And um, that a human cannot be illegal. A human can be without papers or without correct documentation. But that calling a human illegal is very um, degrading and takes a lot away from that soul and that person's worth here in, in the world. Um, from the legal standpoint, unfortunately, there is a lot of uh, legal terminology still in our Immigration and Nationality Act that uh, I consider derogatory. Um, so I, I tend only to use it when absolutely necessary when writing legal briefs. But for the most part, um, you know, when we're referring to clients or um, immigrants who are coming from other countries, we, we never use the word illegal. People from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Mexico, uh, the gang violence has, has gotten to a level where it's, um, it's just an epidemic. And it's very dangerous, especially to be a female or to be a child in those areas of the world right now. Um, a lot of it has to do with climate change too and causing, you know, everything is connected. So it's not just gangs being gangs, it's their, you know, economic forces at play that are based on the environment and based on various trade agreements and, um, you know, cross-border agreements as well. More immigrants live in the United States than any other country in the world. Today, more than 40 million people in the U.S. were born in a different country, accounting for about one-fifth of the world's migrants. We feel that education and knowledge is a really powerful tool right now for the immigrant community. There are a lot of myths and rumors going around um, in the immigrant community, but then also in the non-immigrant community about what is happening. And so we try to just um, equip people with truth and facts and figures. And uh, sometimes it's boring, but most of the time I think people walk away feeling like, oh, I'm glad to have that information. Visit this episode's show notes at preemptivelove.org podcast for more tips for talking about immigration with your family, statistics and studies used in today's episode, and links to Jose's personal podcast. You can also download the free Love Beyond Borders wallpapers for your phone. In our next episode of Love Anyway, we'll explore involving children in their community in ways that matter as we follow Preemptive Love's key relationships officer, Diana Ostrike, and her sons as they attend a vigil on behalf of families at the border. We'll hear from a child's perspective, their family's commitment to community involvement, and navigating hard topics as a family. The Love Anyway podcast is written and produced by me, Kayla Craig, along with Ben Irwin and Aaron Wilson. Skip Matheny is our digital production director. Johnny Craig is our audio editor. Our audio is mixed and mastered by Dylan Seals. Jeremy Courtney, Jessica Courtney, and J.R. Purcell are executive producers. Special thanks to Billy Price, Jose Chiquito, Kim Moreau, Eileen Rose, Laura Pontius, and Louisa, whose name was changed protect her identity. Our theme music is by Roman Candle. Connect with us and learn more about what we do via at Preemptive Love on Instagram and Twitter. Use the hashtag LoveAnyway to give feedback or start a conversation. I'm Erin Wilson, and this is Love Anyway. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.